Hi, you are listening to ACR 2018 Podcasts. I'm John Cush, Executive Editor of Room Now. This is a compilation of podcasts from the ACR 2018 meeting in Chicago, wherein you'll hear daily reports from the experts, the KOLs, and people making the news. Hope you enjoy the recording. Hi, I'm Dr. Janet Pope. I'm a roving Room Now reporter, and I'm here at the Room Now booth. ACR 2018 in Chicago. I wanted to talk to you about a very interesting abstract because I think there's a funny take-home message. Abstract 2870 looked at 1,776 uh, people with RA from the VA uh, institution where they had had RA and their scores were done. RAPIDS 3, CDI, SDI uh, and other scores. And what's really interesting about this is that I think the scores are lacking face validity. I'm not going to tell you not to measure them, but what they found, because it has implications for disease treatment, is that the concordance of patients in low disease activity, remission, moderate high disease, or high disease activity was not very concordant. So although these scores have very similar components, um, patients that were in remission on one score weren't in another. So the problem is if you're treating to a target, depending on varying your target you could have far different treatment. What I do think though is a real take-home message is that the scores changing over time is still valid so please measure, pick a score and follow it but if your neighbor's picking a different score you might not agree on treatment. Thank you. We're ready. Hello, this is Bill Shergi from Huntsville, Alabama, winding down at the ACR. But I want to talk about one very exciting program that I attended, and this is one that I think all of us in rheumatology need to focus on. It was the guidelines for reproductive health in all of our rheumatology patients. And uh, I'm always a little skeptical to hear these guidelines, but I was so impressed by the amount of work put into by the committee. They reviewed over 12,000 articles that were put forth by obstetricians, maternal fetal medicine, endocrinologists, reproductive uh, endocrinologists, along with rheumatologists and experts in the medicines that we utilize. And they then whittled it down to roughly 320 that were up to mustard to be reevaluated. And it's from these that the guidelines uh, and suggestions have been proposed. Uh, and this covers contraception, it co covers drugs that we utilize, it covers what to do with uh, flares. So it's a very nice topic. But some of the highlights, uh, very clearly a point that came out was that the patient really views her rheumatologist as the prime provider of information. And uh, there was a committee of patients that advised the panel, and they made it clear that they feel more comfortable with their rheumatologist than their gynecologist. And so we need to be familiar with this. We also need to bring up these uh, discussions early on and often as well because as we all know, pregnancies can come at any time, no matter what the best laid plans may be. And it's important for that uh, discussion to have taken place. Uh, the idea with the medicines, certainly uh, we use the safest medicines to, uh, for the patients. However, what has also been driven home is that this is not so much 
driven by what is dangerous to the baby, but more in keeping the mother healthy, keeping her disease under control, because that is what will allow the best outcome for the fetus. And uh, so I urge you to look at some of these guidelines. Uh, the uh, major ones were simply uh, use the most effective contraception uh, if the patient is uh, uh, looking for contraception. Uh, if the person is with active lupus or if they have a positive antiphospholipid antibody, you should not utilize estrogen-based compounds. Uh, but one interesting fact was that estrogens were deemed uh, safe for the postmenopausal lupus patient for symptoms in the same fashion of using the lowest effective dose. Clearly, if they have phospholipid antibody or if the disease is active, we would not recommend this. And looking at our RA patients, keep the disease under control. TNFs are generally felt to be safe. The recommendation in the guidelines is into the third trimester and then consider removing them, although they did make point that our GI colleagues will frequently use TNFs throughout the entire pregnancy to keep inflammatory bowel disease under control. Uh, so with that, I urge you to make yourself familiar with some of the other contents of the article. Uh, it will be hopefully coming out within the next year. Uh, these guidelines are available in abstract form, and uh, I, I think another useful aspect of these would be to discuss them with your patients and also to discuss them with your colleagues because we as rheumatologists need to be involved in the management of our pregnant patients. We don't want to let the control of our lupus patient who's pregnant strictly to the obstetrician. So it's a team effort. Everyone needs to be on the same page. And with that, I say thank you and keep coming to the ACR. Hi, I'm Jack Cush talking on psoriatic arthritis, and this is the best thing I saw today. It's a TIC2 inhibitor from BMS. It's got a long number instead of a name, BMS986165. Um, this is actually reported from the dermatology meetings and is actually in press at the New England Journal. Uh, uh, being presented here at, at the ACR meeting, it's a, a phase two, an early phase two dose ranging study, uh, only done in psoriasis, not a psoriatic arthritis trial. This is a psoriasis trial. But you know, TIC2 is part of the Janus kinase family, and this is a selective TIC2 inhibitor that's now making its way into uh, inflammatory diseases, uh, starting out in psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Uh, I believe trials are planned. In this particular trial, they did a dose ranging, uh, and it turns out that the primary endpoint, a posse 75, was achieved by like 69 to 75% of patients at week 12 receiving either three milligrams or six milligrams. I think there was a 12 milligram group in there too. So they are starting to narrow the dose. I don't think we, they know it yet, but they've seen some very impressive results uh, as far as skin, skin clearing. They had uh, good numbers of patients achieving a, a posse 90, even a posse 100, a posse 100. I don't know the numbers were as high as that seen with the uh, IL-23 uh, and some of the IL-17 inhibitors, but it's going to be a competitor. Um, so you're going to see more about TIC2 inhibition in diseases like psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and rheumatoid arthritis. The safety profile looked good, and uh, we need to see more data on this. That's it for Room Now. Tune in. Hello, this is Bill Shergi from Huntsville, Alabama, winding down at the ACR. 
But I want to talk about one very exciting program that I attended, and this is one that I think all of us in rheumatology need to focus on. It was the guidelines for reproductive health in all of our rheumatology patients. And uh, I'm always a little skeptical to hear these guidelines, but I was so impressed by the amount of work put into by the committee. They reviewed over 12,000 articles that were put forth by obstetricians, maternal fetal medicine, endocrinologists, reproductive uh, endocrinologists, along with rheumatologists and experts in the medicines that we utilize. And they then whittled it down to roughly 320 that were up to mustard to be reevaluated. And it's from these that the guidelines uh, and suggestions have been proposed. Uh, and this covers contraception, it co covers drugs that we utilize, it covers what to do with uh, flares. So it's a very nice topic. But some of the highlights, uh, very clearly a point that came out was that the patient really views her rheumatologist as the prime provider of information. And uh, there was a committee of patients that advised the panel, and they made it clear that they feel more comfortable with their rheumatologist than their gynecologist. And so we need to be familiar with this. We also need to bring up these uh, discussions early on and often as well because as we all know, pregnancies can come at any time, no matter what the best laid plans may be. And it's important for that uh, discussion to have taken place. Uh, the idea with the medicines, certainly, uh, we use the safest medicines to, uh, for the patients. However, what has also been driven home is that this is not so much driven by what is dangerous to the baby, but more in keeping the mother healthy keeping her disease under control because that is what will allow the best outcome for the fetus. And uh, so I urge you to look at some of these guidelines. Uh, the uh, major ones were simply uh, use the most effective contraception uh, if the patient is uh, uh, looking for contraception. Uh, if the person is with active lupus or if they have a positive antiphospholipid antibody, you should not utilize estrogen-based compounds. Uh, but one interesting fact was that estrogens were deemed uh, safe for the postmenopausal lupus patient for symptoms in the same fashion of using the lowest effective dose. Clearly, if they have phospholipid antibody or if the disease is active, we would not recommend this. And looking at our RA patients, keep the disease under control. TNFs are generally felt to be safe. The recommendation in the guidelines is into the third trimester and then consider removing them, although they did make point that our GI colleagues will frequently use TNFs throughout the entire pregnancy to keep inflammatory bowel disease under control. Uh, so with that, I urge you to make yourself familiar with some of the other contents of the article. Uh, it will be hopefully coming out within the next year. Uh, these guidelines are available in abstract form, and uh, I, I think another useful aspect of these would be to discuss them with your patients 
and also to discuss them with your colleagues because we as rheumatologists need to be involved in the management of our pregnant patients. We don't want to let the control of our lupus patient who's pregnant strictly to the obstetrician. So it's a team effort. Everyone needs to be on the same page. And with that, I say thank you and keep coming to the ACR. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. We're here at the Room Now booth in ACR 2018 in Chicago. Great meeting so far. We're going to have a panel discussion, a group discussion, about what's new and exciting in psoriatic arthritis here at the meeting. I'm very fortunate to have with me my friends Eric Ruderman from Chicago, Dr. Philip Meese from Seattle. Uh, gentlemen, what's been the highlight for you? Phil, why don't you start with one highlight from this meeting that you'd like to talk about? Well, one uh, was obviously the data on forgotten psoriatic arthritis that was a uh, plenary uh, lecture. The uh, data showed that this very selective JAK1 inhibitor had good efficacy across all domains of psoriatic arthritis. Modest in skin, but very good in the musculoskeletal uh, elements. Uh, and then in terms of the selectivity of, of the molecule, what it's aiming for is not to have a JAK2 effect on hematologic parameters. And indeed, the hemoglobin went up. There were no grade two, three, or four changes. So that suggests that there was something about the biology that was true to form. So uh, this drug is now going on into phase three, and it will be uh, hopefully another JAK, an oral agent taken once a day that can be effective for psoriatic press. So what did you think of uh, again, this is an early trial. It's 130 patients. It's their first phase two. Um, the results were great, 80 versus 33 in ACR20s. Um, that really, the safety profile was either understated or just really it is that safe. So they had very few SAEs, very few, you know, events. I, I think it's too early to say. Just too Good. few patients, short period of time. My guess is that on many of the uh, Jack side effects, it's going to show up further zoster cholesterol, do some LFTs, but uh, on, the, on that theme stuff, I think that was very interesting and very cool. Eric, what was a highlight for you at this meeting? You know, I think, what, honestly, up front, one of the big highlights was the number of controlled trials that we're seeing in the psoriatic arthritis space, and, and one of them was a, a trial of a molecule called Pemicuzumab. Um, you know, we, we know we've had IL-17 inhibitors, but IL-17 inhibitor is a, is a broad category. The two drugs that we've had to date, um, secukinumab and exekinumab, inhibit IL-17A, a specific you know, monomer of IL-17. Demikizumab is an interesting molecule that inhibits both IL-17A and IL-17F, which may potentially bring added benefit. In, in preclinical data, particularly for skin, there's a suggestion if you block both, you actually get a greater response than just blocking IL-17A. And we previously had it, we saw a trial actually in psoriasis. It was an early trial, maybe showed that, it wasn't clear. So here we had a trial, phase two trial in psoriatic arthritis, and the key question was, do you get more mileage out of blocking both IL-17A and IL-17F? Um, and the answer was not clearly yes. That did look kind of like the other IL-17 inhibitors. Um, you know, it was a phase two study. It is, you know, sort of a limited number of patients, but broadly there was not a sense that there was this huge uptick in response relative to what we're used to seeing in IL-17 inhibitors in, in psoriatic arthritis. Um, 
safety didn't seem different. Again, it's phase two, and like like Phil said, and in, in, in the Phil Goddard study, you know, you don't want to make too many safety calls at a phase two level and swallow the patient. But it didn't look like blocking both molecules added a safety concern. I'm just not sure it added a um, an efficacy benefit. We'll see as they go into later stage trials. So, do you think this says anything about the importance of blocking IL 17F? I mean, most go after A, isn't that correct? Yes. And the question is, is F important in this equation? So, based on, I'll echo what Eric said, based on some translational studies uh, looking at um, heat maps of inhibition of expression of inflammatory molecules, it looked like there is some benefit to F addition to A. The proof is going to be in the pudding in the phase three program. Right. So I, I, I think it, I, I would completely echo Eric's comment. So you you asked me to comment on the, the thing that I one item, but I have to say that there was another trial that really was a fundamentally important trial uh, for all of us mm-hmm. as rheumatologists who take care of psoriatic arthritis patients, and that was the SEEM trial. SEEM, absolutely. So. This was a trial in which um, we took patients very early in disease, median duration of disease, six months, and they were virgin to methotrexate, and we put them on either methotrexate alone, the tannercept alone, or on the combination of the two. Modeled after the TEMPO study in rheumatoid arthritis. So what did we learn from TEMPO? We learned that methotrexate was similar to monotherapy atanercept, and that the combination of the two was clearly superior in all of the arthritis domains and x-rays and so forth. And so what did we learn from the SEEM trial? As it turns out, methotrexate did very well. Uh, There was a good set of ACR responses. It worked in lymphocytes and bactylitis, which we had not previously known. It had decent skin scores. The one area that it sort of fell down was that there were some progressors uh, in the x-ray uh, arena. So uh, there was some structural damage progression. Only, only on methotrexate. Only on methotrexate. Right. It wasn't a lot of people, though. No, it wasn't a lot of people. Be careful about a very, very small number of people, but at least there was a, a trace of a signal. The Tanner set did better than methotrexate, uh, but not by a whole lot. But it was clearly superior, and when you wove in the issue of side effects, which were nausea, etc., with methotrexate, I think patients, if they had a choice, would prefer being on a tannocept monotherapy. But the real difference from the Tempo trial was by taking a tannocept and uh, methotrexate together, it really didn't add benefit over what we saw with uh, either drug monotherapy. So in relatively early RA, adding methotrexate to a tannocept didn't mean much, but because it was relatively early, you probably maxed out your methotrexate response. You probably had really good methotrexate responses, which is, uh, again, why you don't have big separation between all these arms, that uh, a tannocept was better, and the combination was better than methotrexate. But, Eric, what's your impression of the trial? No, I very much saw that, and I think, you know, the intriguing part was that it was different than what we've seen in RNA. Right? Adding the second, adding the methotrexate to the biologic. You know, the challenge is how do you then translate this into clinical practice, right? So the two questions that come up is: um, so does this trial say we shouldn't be using methotrexate, or because methotrexate worked really well, maybe that's the, you know, absent the, the tolerability issues, 
this trial actually, more than anything we've seen today, it said methotrexate is a really effective drug. So then it's sort of a, a glass half full, glass half empty. Is should we be using more methotrexate based on this? Yes, Tanercept was better, but it's way more expensive. Okay. And the other issue was it was clear that adding methotrexate to Tanercept didn't make any difference. Is that just an Tanercept thing? Or is that a TNF issue? And I, we can't tell that that's the sort of that's the next question of this because that in RA across all the TNF molecules, adding methotrexate gives you better response. In psoriatic arthritis, it doesn't in a tanner set. With a tanner set, I don't know unfortunately about the other molecules. So let, let's wrap up with a, a little commentary from two of you about this tick inhibitor. I mean that's sort of novel and not seen by our community yet. Um, who wants to take a stab at that? I'll start by just commenting that so this is a drug uh, that has an interesting mechanism of action. Uh, it very uh, selectively binds to a portion of the tick molecule that is, quote, not conserved. So it is not promiscuous across jack domains. It's very specific for tick 2. And, and so what they're going for uh, is specific inhibition of interleukin-23, which signals uh, through TIC2. And it showed very, they, they showed data from a psoriasis trial in which there were PASI-75 responses in the high 60% range. So not dissimilar from what we've seen with the monoclonal TNF inhibitors. I think pretty good. Not necessarily as high as the IL-17 or IL-23 inhibitors, right. but still very good. Uh, and the safety profile was uh, pretty darn good. And interestingly, at higher doses, a little bit of acne uh, was noticed. But the, uh, uh, they did a novel thing. They asked patients at the beginning of the trial, do you have musculoskeletal pain symptoms? Uh, and then they measured pain VS response in those patients. There were about 30% of patients that had pain uh, at, at the baseline. So that could have been a, at least largely a psoriatic arthritis population. They didn't specifically ask about PSA. And they found a very significant drop in pain. Uh, so it gave them a little bit of a signal about uh, the possibility of, of testing it in PSA. And, and as I understand it, they are going forward with the trial in psoriatic arthritis. Same. Eric, what do yeah, you think? Was interesting. I think it was more interesting in concept than what we actually showed, and I actually was a little disappointed. So, so you know, we've spent a lot of time talking about over the last few years the various Jack isoforms in Jack One, is it Jack Two, is it Jack Three, and Tick Two is sort of the the fourth in that group. And we've seen pretty clearly in, in all the data we've had that the, that inhibiting the different Jacks gives you fairly similar clinical response. We've talked a lot about it doesn't seem much different. This is the first data we've seen with inhibiting the fourth member of that family. So right. I thought that was really interesting. And, and as Phil pointed out, you know, the the hook for this ideally would be that, that IL-23, which we know is an incredibly important molecule in, in skin psoriasis particularly, signals through TIC2 and not through any of the other members of the family. Right. And so that maybe you can isolate the IL-23. But the trial didn't really show that. And I think that's a really key point is that when you looked at the skin, this was a skin trial, it was a psoriasis trial, when you looked at the skin results, it didn't look like an IL-23 inhibitor. It looked right. more like a TNF, a TNF inhibitor, yeah. as Philip said, maybe an IL-17. So 
you know, the promise of this would be an oral drug that works like an IL-23 inhibitor, which we've seen is really the, the sort of pinnacle of what we've got treating psoriasis. We don't know yet psoriatic arthritis where they're going to go. I don't think it answered that promise. But it's still a new molecule, and it's exciting it's to... Right yeah, to and it's very cool, and I want to see more with it. Absolutely. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your very instructive comments. Uh, I think it's really educational. Thank you. Yes. Thanks, All right. Jack. Tune in. Pleasure. Bye. This is Artie Kavanaugh for Room Now Live, which is a new meeting that's coming up. You're watching me on Room Now, but we're taking that to the next step. And Jack Cush and I, we're going to have this meeting in Dallas. It's going to be uh, the end of March 2019. It's brand new, and it's going to be a great learning experience for rheumatologists to share our expertise with each other and learn about some of the newest developments, some of which we've seen here at ACR 2018. So we'll see you at Room Now Live in Fort Worth in March. This is Artie Kavanaugh, I'm in Room Now Live, and I'm here at ACR 2018. Just want to invite you all to come to the Rheumatology Winter Clinical Symposium, RWCS, maybe February 13 to 16, 2019, and we'll get to discuss a lot of the hot topics in rheumatology. Be there. Aloha. This is Artie Kavanaugh at the ACR 2018 meeting. Jack Kush and I just finished our rheumatology roundup session. A couple of, uh, of the many posters that were very exciting, uh, very interesting, and very informative. Uh, there's a poster on the concurrence of ANCA in patients with anti-GBM disease, good pastures. And it turns out that this is something we're seeing more in the clinic and that those with ANCA are more likely to relapse. Uh, there was a nice basic science poster on the cannabinoids, super hot topic that's getting a lot of play because the patients are using this and with the legalization across different states and countries even, but it may have some medicinal value. And it was a basic science that looked at the agonist of the CB2 cannabinoid receptor, uh, which has a lot of inflammatory potential and uh, inhibition of that or some sort of a mixed agonist antagonist, including the CB1, may have anti-inflammatory features. Uh, and then a, a, a analysis of NHANES, a large survey of American population, looking at patients with chronic back pain and uh, comparing those to first-degree relatives of ankylosing spondylitis patients who have back pain. And uh, bottom line to me is that there's probably a lot of undiagnosed spondyloarthropathy among patients with chronic back pain. The prevalence of heel pain as a surrogate potentially for anthocytis, the prevalence of psoriasis was harder. So there's a lot of disease out there that we're probably not seeing and hopefully with new therapies, there's gonna be greater recognition and those patients will come into the rheumatology offices. So for Room Now, this is Artie Cavanaugh at ACR 2018. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now, and we just finished Rheumatology Roundup 2018 here at ACR in Chicago. Artie Kavanaugh and I covered about 15 abstracts at the 7.30 hour here on Wednesday morning. Uh, nice session, highly attended. Uh, we had fun, we learned a lot, 
Um, here's a few of the highlights of things I presented. Um, first was an interesting abstract about DIP involvement in rheumatoid arthritis patients. This comes from the Ninja Rheumatoid Arthritis Registry in Japan. This includes over 12,000 patients who they looked at their joint exams and specifically looked at DIPs two through five and found that of the 12,000 patients, 2% had involvement of the DIP joints. Turns out that DIP involvement wasn't related at all to age or hack or seropositivity, but it was related to disease activity. Patients who had DIP involvement, two through five, in general, about two, those who had involvement, about 2.6 DIPs per patient were involved. DIP involvement tended to portend more hand joint involvement, DIPs, PIPs, MCPs, and wrist, and that DIP2 involvement was associated with higher measures of disease activity, the DASH-28, uh, TJC, SJC, and even pain scores much higher in those who have DIP2 involvement. So, it is part and parcel rheumatoid arthritis, you need to look for it. Another interesting abstract, those uh, 2220 gout flares. This is a South Australian uh, patient uh, population-based survey where they looked at the incidence of gout and how they're treated and outcomes and whatnot. And what they found was that 6.5% of the population self-reported themselves as having gout. Most importantly of those patients, only a third were being treated with urate-lowering therapy. When they coned down and looked at those patients who had frequent gout, meaning more than two attacks in the last year, they found that 25% of the population admitted to that and that only 50% of those people were taking allopurinol, suggesting we're not doing a good job. We're not doing a good job identifying these people and treating them. Uh, and, and to that uh, end, there were two other abstracts at the meeting which focused on pharmacist-led management of gout. Very interesting and novel studies, both kind of small and regional, but they basically said the same thing as was currently being reported in Lancet by O'Darty um, looking at nurse-led management of a gout clinic. And what they basically saw there, where in your practice, you're only achieving the target of uric acid less than six in less than 40% of patients. In these clinics, it's either 70 to 95%. You have better adherence, you have less flares. We got to resurrect the gold clinic and bring back the gout clinic. And this time, being led by either pharmacists or nurses who can do the job using a protocol that you design. Turns out rheumatologists, we're just not seeing enough of them. We're too busy to do a good job that we know we can do. We should be outsourcing this really to the, to the improvement of our patients. I'm going to end with a discussion of 837, the plenary session on standard dose vaccination versus high dose vaccination in rheumatoid arthritis patients. As you know, the high dose vaccine, usually quadrivalent, is uh, indicated in elderly individuals where it's been shown to work very well. Uh, they have to usually go somewhere to get it. It's usually not in the clinic. They have to go to a, a pharmacy or where, wherever. But the question is, would this work well and should we be using it in our RA patients? RA patients have a two to three-fold increased risk of, of, of getting seasonal flu. Uh, and we know that RA patients and other patients in general are not being vaccinated as much as they should be. Uh, so the question was, how should, they, how, should we, how should we vaccinate them? And in this study done in Canada by McGill University researchers, looked at, I think, 270 patients who were randomized to receive over two different vaccine seasons, either the high-dose uh, vaccine versus the standard-dose vaccine. And in the end, looking at uh, seroprotection, seroconversion rates, there was a two- to three-fold increase uh, success with the high-dose vaccine, suggesting this is a slam dunk. You really should be doing it. 
Uh, and then when they looked at it according to the therapies, most patients were on DMARDs and methotrexate, many of them were on biologics. Turns out that, that, that therapy didn't affect these results at all unless you were on rituximab uh, and maybe a few others, but really it seems like it's rituximab that would impair the response. The reason this is important, that there are two drugs that do impair um, uh, immunogenicity of the vaccine, and that would be methotrexate number one, and in this case, uh, as we just said, rituximab number two. So this data is sort of convincing and may change practice, um, and I would encourage you to look at it. That's it from ACR 2018. I'm Jack Cush. Tune into Room Now. Hi, I'm Jack Cush. I want to remind you to go to RWCS, a fabulous meeting held in Maui every year, chaired by Artie Cavanaugh and George Martin. Uh, I'm part of the faculty. I'm lucky enough to go. Uh, it's a different meeting. It's a different atmosphere. It's a different feel. It's a consistent faculty within others invited in. Uh, very interactive, um, a great environment to learn. The world's best speakers show up at this meeting. Uh, I would strongly urge you to uh, make the effort to go to, um, uh, to Maui to attend this meeting. Lord knows over 200 of your colleagues are going. You, maybe it should be you as well. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I want to remind you of Room Now Live occurring in Fort Worth. March 22, Friday afternoon, March 23, all day Saturday, March 24, half day Sunday morning, a really exciting meeting called Room Now Live, um, co-chaired by Artie Cavanaugh and I, uh, a program designed by you, the rheumatologist. Uh, it's a very different design. It's a flipped classroom, shorter segments, a lot of discussion, an interactive app, a digital delivery. Uh, it, we, want, we want people to come, although we're going to cap the attendance at a certain number. The rest of you can watch remotely, on, uh, either live or on the archive content. It's going to be a fabulous meeting with the great speakers, uh, and more importantly, we're going to have these great sessions devoted to RA, PSA, AS, vasculitis, drug safety, orthopedics, and lupus. And then in between, we're going to mix in some TED-like talks that we're calling our step sessions, sessions devoted by great speakers talking about uh, science, technology, education, and patients. Uh, it really is going to be a meeting apart. Um, go to roomnow.live to see more about this. We'll see you in Fort Worth in March.